Hello, I'm Jen Watt. Welcome to the Schools of Wellbeing podcast. This podcast invites you to listen to conversations I am having with fellow researchers and academics who explain the schools of thought that influence what they think well-being and well-becoming means and how it connects to schools, students, teachers, educational leaders, and wider communities. I also have vibrant conversations with K-12 educators about the inspiring ways their schools are living out well-being and well-becoming. My motto for this podcast, come for the joy, stay for the flourishing. I'm so grateful you are joining us as we think about how to live well and thrive in schools. Welcome back to our new summer season of this podcast. Or if you're just joining us for the first time, I am so glad that you found your way to our listening community. Our plan is to drop new episodes every two weeks during this summer season so that you can slowly enjoy the new content and also catch up on the first season if you haven't had a chance to listen to all of the episodes. I'm absolutely delighted that we are beginning this season with a very timely and important conversation about compassion and contemplative studies in education with Dr. Wayne Sarabin. Wayne is an associate professor in the Curriculum Teaching and Learning Department at the University of Manitoba. Without a doubt, I can say that Wayne has been one of the most transformational teachers and mentors that I have had in my life. More than a decade ago, I was persistent enough to convince Wayne to agree to be my doctoral supervisor, and since that time, he has continually encouraged me to follow curiosity as an educator and cultivate compassion as a human being. I was prompted to connect with Wayne and bugged to see if he might come onto my podcast because of my daughter's grade 11 English homework. Just before school was moved online for COVID, my daughter was starting to read the novel Tuesdays with Maury and write an essay about the important mentors in her life. I hadn't read the novel before, so she suggested I do so so I could become a more informed editor of her paper and also because it's just a really good book. So I set about reading about a student who had been back in touch with his favorite professor. This paragraph made me absolutely stop and think about Wayne. The author Mitch Album writes, Have you ever really had a teacher? One who saw you as a raw but precious thing, a jewel that with wisdom could be polished to a proud shine? If you are lucky enough to find your way to such teachers, you will always find your way back. Wayne is exactly that kind of teacher. This podcast gave me the perfect excuse to find my way back and have a meaningful conversation with him about the newest directions of his teaching and research. Although incredibly humble and not one to flaunt his credentials, Wayne is the ultimate lifelong learner and he has been studying in universities across North America and engaging in learning communities around the world in areas of compassion cultivation, self-compassion, resiliency, mindful schools, and nonviolent communication. Take a deep breath and get ready to settle into this powerful conversation about contemplative studies in education. Today, I'm very lucky to be here with Wayne Sarabin. And if any of you have been lucky enough to have a course with Wayne, you'll know that the experience is very different perhaps than you've maybe experienced with other teachers. Wayne is a gentle, kind, incredible listener, and he creates his classrooms and his spaces to be very experiential, to be very embodied, and you almost are drawn into a bit of a ritual within the learning. There are opportunities to pause, to reflect, to think, and to listen. And so as much as possible, we really tried to structure this podcast so that you could experience 
a little taste of what that is. Now, of course, that's going to be different in podcast form, but we've included some spaces for Wayne to do some readings and to do some of the practices that he might use in classrooms or with children and youth here with us today. So Wayne, I cannot thank you enough for you being here. And um, I'm gonna pass it over to you so that you can start us by introducing the reading practice that you, you thought might invite us into your, into your thinking and into, into this space together. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you, Jen, for uh, inviting me. And um, also for that um, kind introduction and the flexibility to um, do this podcast in a way that I hope would honor the spirit of the content. So I, um, I thought I would begin um, uh, with a poem. And um, I want to do that because um, in the wake of the horrific murder of George Floyd two weeks ago in Minnesota, and in recognition of the ongoing protests in cities across the US and Canada and in many other places in the world, um, where thousands of people of all races are showing up in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic to demand an end to violence and suffering perpetrated against Black lives and to amplify Black, Brown, and Indigenous voices crying out for the dismantling of systems of racism and oppression. Um, I believe compassion as a way of being is more needed and more relevant than ever. And with that in mind, I uh, wanted to begin with a poem written by Dr. Zoom Vo. Um, and Dr. Vo is a pediatrician specializing in adolescent medicine and mindfulness for teens in the province of British Columbia. And I'm not sure that the poem has a title, but it begins with, I can't breathe, said George Floyd, the knee of 400 years of racism on his neck. I can't breathe, said the woman with fear in her eyes, her lungs attacked by coronavirus as she was put onto the ventilator. I can't breathe, said the nurse, exhausted after a long shift, sweating under a hot surgical mask and foggy goggles. I can't breathe, said the young man, poisoned by a toxic drug supply and generations of trauma and loss. I can't breathe, said the 100,000 dead Americans, a nation and a world in mourning. I can't breathe, said cities choked in smoke from a planet on fire. Breathe, my dear, said the Buddha of our time, reminding us of the way to love and healing and transformation. Breathe, my dear, said the beloved community grieving and waking up together. Breathe, my dear, said Mother Earth, and let my oceans, mountains, and forests embrace you. 
Right now, when it seems so hard just to breathe, right now, just breathe. Wow. Yeah. What a powerful poem that both takes our breath away and reminds us to return to that breath. Yeah. And when I reflect on this poem, Jen, yeah. I recognize that it's a time for me to do my own compassionate inner and outer work. You know, inwardly, it's important, especially in this time, that I connect with my own profound emotions of sorrow, of anger, you know, sometimes bordering on hopelessness and take ownership for critically uncovering and addressing my own biases and my own blind spots. And outwardly, I think it's also important to tap into reserves of humility, of open-heartedness and deep listening. If as a white man, I am to be worthy, uh, to be a worthy ally, Mm. who embraces the principles of interconnection and common humanity aimed at undoing systemic racism and injustice and in fostering compassion at a societal level. And for me specifically in the field of education, um, this is a time to recommit myself to respectful relationships, with communities of color and to use whatever privilege I have to pursue compassion as a central principle in co-creating a safer, kinder, and more equitable world. So I wonder, Jen, if you'd be willing to indulge me further by allowing me to invite you and your listeners on this podcast to participate in a brief compassion awareness practice. Yes. If you will guide us through it, I think we would all be uh, willing to, uh, to give this uh, a try because I think you're absolutely right in the way that you have connected to the work that we all are, you know, is, is heavy on our heads and hearts right now. So yes, show us, show us what, we're, what we're going to, to do here. Yeah, I thought that just talking about compassion in the field of contemplative studies in education would be kind of missing the point without, um, you know, participating in um, an experience of compassionate practice. And I don't know if it would be missing the point, but I think it's sometimes hard to see the point if you haven't actually experienced some of those practices and, and really thought about what it feels like in your body and what it enables you to, um, what it enables you to open to. So I'm, I'm really grateful that you're willing to kind of lead us through one of these practices. Okay, so thank you for that. So I'd ask you and your listeners to begin by finding a comfortable posture. And uh, just adjusting your back so that it's straight but relaxed. 
And if you're sitting in a chair, you'll, you'll want to feel a sense of being grounded by having your feet planted firmly on the floor. And it's always an invitation. You can choose to close your eyes if that is comfortable for you or to just lower and soften your gaze. And maybe just at the beginning, you and your listeners might also want to try just slowly raising and lowering your shoulders a few times. You can try that. And just notice if that brings you any relaxation. Now I'd invite you to take a few deep breaths, inhaling through your nose and drawing the breath all the way down into your diaphragm, just letting your belly expand, briefly holding that breath, and then exhaling through your mouth, releasing the breath fully. So let's take two more deep breaths in this way, inhaling through the nose, Briefly holding and exhaling through. And as you exhale, just imagine that you're not only releasing the tensions in your body, but also worries, anxieties, and any other tensions you might be feeling. One last deep breath. Thank you. And just checking in with yourself and noticing without expectation and if possible with curiosity and kindness, if you're feeling any sense of quietening in your body, any sense of stillness, calm, spaciousness, maybe stability. And just being present and accepting of whatever feelings show up. So I'd ask you now to just inhale and exhale through your nose only. And just allow your breath to settle into its own natural rhythm. And as you attend to your breath, I invite you, Jen, and your listeners to bring to mind an event from your recent or past experiences that readily evokes a sense of compassion. This could be a time in your life when you gave compassion to someone else or when you received compassion from someone. And I'd like you to just take a moment to picture this scene in your mind's eye as vividly as possible. Who was there? Where were you? Maybe even what time of day was it? And if a mental picture doesn't come to mind, see if you can just notice what you feel 
when you recall this instance. Felt sense. I'm either giving or receiving compassion. See if you can pay attention to what it feels like for you to be in touch with the memory of this experience of compassion. And when you're ready, would you please open your eyes or, or raise your gaze? So thank you for that. And uh, before we began this podcast, um, I'd asked Jen if she'd be willing to share her experience of this short compassion awareness practice. And so Jen, I'm wondering if you'd uh, be willing to share with us what this experience felt like for you. How did you know that you were um, feeling um, compassion or visualizing compassion as opposed to something else? And can you describe maybe what the memory of this experience felt like in your body? I think that this was just such an amazing gift. We talked about it. And yet every day, I think there's so many moments that um, offer themselves to us that are that are asking for our compassion or or offering us compassion. And so actually, I had just very recently within, you know, actually a couple of hours had a, a really powerful conversation with someone. So my memory was very close. So I, I think as I moved into the experience, the breathing and the taking time to have that space, allowing myself grounded and to pay attention to it felt very much like compassion to myself it was about coming here to this present moment it was being reminded of the breath when so often I think we do live in the I can't breathe moments um, so there was the compassion there and then as you guided through with those questions around compassion I think I I think probably what made me notice compassion the most was the complexity of it I think compassion for me raises so many different feelings. Um, uh, sometimes there's feelings of guilt that I haven't given the compassion earlier or perhaps when it was needed sooner. I think there's sometimes moments where compassion feels uh, purposeful and meaningful and uplifting. I notice that I find it easier to often give compassion than receive compassion uh, and it's something that has been part of my practice and and thinking for a long time about the power of receiving compassion, what that offers others when you're able to receive it from them, but also um, that complex, difficult conversation or, or relationship that we have with our own self and self-compassion. I noticed that um, a lot of the time I, I often try to rush into fixing things for people to make it better. But compassion isn't always that. Compassion is often just sitting with someone while they are hurting and, and allowing there to be space for that. Because we, I think, as a society, are one that rushes to, to fix, rushes to make it better. And, and compassion is, is not often that. Often it means we sit in hurt and uncertainty and discomfort, our own and others. And to me, that's, that's where that, that is. And so... That's what I was thinking about during those, those moments. 
Okay, well, I think we could just end the broadcast, <laughs> broadcast right now because you've just analyzed that so fully and reflectively and thoughtfully. So I'm, I'm really grateful for your attention to what was going on for you, both in, in heart and mind. Um, so thank you for that very rich and complex response. Um, yeah, and I wanted to experience, I wanted to work from that experiential base. And if we were doing a class together, we would, you know, we would invite um, a number of people who were willing to share from their own firsthand experience and, and just dip into um, the complexity and the variety of uh, responses from um, the different participants in that experience. So I'm going to shift now to sort of more, um, perhaps, um, more some widely accepted and standard definitions of compassion. And so in the research literature, in a very um, uh, brief way, um, the literature is has gathered around the idea that compassion is the awareness of another's suffering coupled with the willingness to do something to relieve that suffering. So that's kind of a basic, widely accepted standard definition of compassion, that awareness of another's suffering coupled with the willingness the intentionality and motivation to do something to relieve that suffering. And that coupling is important, isn't it? Because I think um, from, from what I've read and what I've talked about with others, um, empathy and compassion can sometimes be, be used as synonyms and yet, yet they're not. And so to me, it's that, that coupling part that not only, you know, do you, do you feel and you're willing to, to feel and be with the person in that, but it is that, that action, which can also, maybe you're about to talk a little bit more about that, but, but what does that action mean, I guess? And, and does that mean that, you know, um, you always have to, like I, I had just said the thing about ru rushing to fix it, but mm -hmm. compassion, what, what is compassionate action and, and, and how is that different than just being empathetic about someone? Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a beautiful um, segue into where I would like to go. I see empathy and compassion in relationship, that empathy is actually a precursor for the fulfillment of compassion. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm really appreciative as well um, for your discussion of action, because, you know, there's a component here of wisdom and and maybe you know um in relation to my opening comments about the inner work that i have to do and then the outer work related to that inner work is perhaps listening and maybe that is the most compassionate act and um being led a willingness to follow the leadership of others who experience is um has so much 
to teach me and um, is going to uh, respond, is going to respond best to the needs for change um, that are apparent in this moment in our history. So one of my teachers, Kelly McGonagall, uh, and Kelly was one of the founding faculty members of the Compassion Cultivation Training Program that I completed a few years ago uh, that was developed at Stanford University, goes on to describe how compassion ideally unfolds as a process. So just as you mentioned, Jen, compassion begins with an awareness and recognition of suffering. So that's a, that's a cognitive act there. And that's part of empathy, of that awareness and recognition of suffering at the level of understanding. If we don't notice suffering happening, um, we're unlikely to respond to it. And so accompanying that sort of cognitive understanding is um, an aesthetic, is a, a, an emotional, um, a feeling of concern for and connection to the one or to the community that's suffering. So we have the affective dimension there as well, that feeling of concern for and connection to. If we don't feel a sense of common humanity, we may not connect uh, to that person or to that community that is suffering. So there's both that cognitive understanding and that emotive or um, awareness and concern and feeling of connection. And then there's the intention part, that desire to relieve that suffering. And sometimes, and I sort of referred in my opening comments, to despair and hopelessness. If we um, believe that we can't make a difference, we may be unlikely to respond with compassion. So there's also this dimension of a belief or, or hope that you can make a difference and then a willingness to respond via presence. You know, I read this wonderful children's book often called The Rabbit Listened. And it's a story about a little boy whose wonderful block creation is destroyed by a flock of birds. And like your opening comments, Jen, all these other animals come and offer the little boy advice. But it's only the rabbit that sits with the boy that has the courage to be present, to provide the warmth and closeness and support that the little boy eventually opens up to. So there has to be this willingness to respond by a presence. It might be support. It might be individual action. It might be collective action. So, you know, we've framed um, compassion as a feeling, as a, as a value, but it's also connected to wisdom. 
it's um, connected to insight. It's connected to taking wise, informed action. And sometimes that action is, is presence, is listening, is support by showing up and staying in a difficult context. So many of the people who were out in the protests all over the world, you know, were going out at a time of a pandemic and being present um, in solidarity. And then, so, you know, there is this self um, uh, benefit to compassion as well. As we are compassionate to others, uh, we experience this very scientific sounding term, a warm glow <laughs> or a sense of satisfaction that arises from this connection, from this act of caring and from this effort to make a difference. So there's this intentionality, this readiness but it isn't jumping into action without, you know, being well-informed, um, really responding to the needs that are articulated by whomever is, um, is longing for compassion. You know, and another of my beloved teachers, Dr. Thupton Jimpa, and I simply call him Jimpa, um, who's the principal author of the Compassion Cultivation Training Educational Offering. And he's also the chairman of the Compassion Institute, along with many other prestigious leadership roles. And like Jimpa, I too believe that compassion is a philosophy of life. And that it's really guided by the central question of ethics. How do I treat the person in front of me? You know, that person wishes to be treated just as I would wish to be treated by them. And it's this ethical awareness that calls um, our attention to taking responsibility for how we behave. So, you know, I'm thinking we live in a world of increasing disconnection at the individual level. And this is probably what drew me after, you know, more than a quarter of a century of work as a professor in the field of language and literacy education to wanting to do this work. Because I could see the rising levels of anxiety and depression um, among my own students at the university but also among students at all levels in schools. And, you know, Jen, I have, uh, I lost my mother uh, about a month ago now, and my father's in a long-term care facility. And for a long time with aging parents, I've been aware of this epidemic of crippling loneliness. And so at the ind individual level, we have this disconnection but it's also at the collective level that we have growing tribalism and being a bit of a political junkie, 
you know, and um, having to be very careful and restrained in my consumption of cable news. I'm very aware, though, of the collective racism, the tribalism, the sexism, the widening gaps between rich and poor, you know, the impenetrable political divisions and, and, and a host of other forms of othering. So, you know, it's, it's in these times where it seems to me that a philosophy of compassion, um, that both appreciates, recognizes the richness and beauty of our diverse individual and collective perspectives and worldviews and values, languages and cultures and so on, on multiple intersectional levels, is sits with a recognition and appreciation of our fundamental interconnectedness and our shared humanity that I, I spoke about earlier. That so is what I was going to say, actually. I kept hearing earlier that when you were defining what compassion was, that need for that shared humanity and, and that this time that we call for this shared humanity. And from my reading of Sipson Jinpa as well, I, I love when, when he writes about the fact that compassion is a radical act. Um, and, and one that I, I can see is, is needed so much now. And so you've been taking these ideas and it was, it was a big brave choice for you to move from a, a really established and, um, and safe and, and in-demand career in language and literacy where you have been a, an amazing leader in our province for many, many years, but you were seeing and hearing and feeling this need about compassion. And so not only did you want to find out more about what it was, but, but why it was needed and, and, and where that could take place in this, in this setting. And I'm, I'm so excited and um, thankful that you're here to talk about that as well, about how that, how do we, how do we take the complexity and find our shared humanity? And I think it is that principle, those two principles, that shared humanity and that sense of interconnectedness. If we didn't have an awareness of our interconnectedness before the COVID-19 pandemic, we sure do now. And so that is that central awareness of, you know, just like me, you too wish not to suffer and you too wish to be happy and this is a this is a shared platform that crosses religions cultures geography we all wish to love and to be loved to know kindness you know and, and i think uh, my grandmother my maternal grandmother uh, taught me about the experience at a very young age of unconditional acceptance. And, um, you know, so this has really motivated me on the basis of um, these universal and universalizable 
ethical values of interconnection and shared humanity. Um, to think about how in education, um, we have both the freedom and I think a responsibility to be making choices about how we wish to relate to ourselves, how we wish to relate to others, and how we wish to participate in the structuring of society and the world. So those three spheres have really become very critical to my visioning, envisioning of what this means for education. Um, and I'm really drawing here on, um, on Daniel Goleman and um, Peter Senge's work of the integration of, of self, other, and uh, the larger community and system. So, you know, I really, I don't want to um, present an idea that this has come from me. Um, you know, it's my, my current unfolding vision or emerging vision has really been inspired by, by the Compassion Institute, by the Mind and Life Institute, which Jimpa is also involved in, my own local studies in, um, in the Compassion Project uh, here in Winnipeg at um, the St. Boniface Hospital. You know, I did work at the University of Toronto in applied mindfulness. I'm a trained teacher in mindful self-compassion. I've been studying nonviolent communication all over the world. Um, and I've been learning a lot about how this um, might be realized in education through social, emotional, and ethical education work. And, and really I've been inspired there by Sophie Langry and um, Tara Wilkie and Danielle Marquis and a host of Montreal teachers. Um, and so this is what I've been involved in. I've been trying to draw upon um, secularly adapted practices and accessible language uh, based on techniques and tools from contemplative wisdom traditions, from consciousness studies, from current neuroscience, especially the work on brain plasticity, psychology-based research, cultural studies, anti-oppressive and decolonizing education theory, research and pedagogy, and the creative arts. So I've been learning with and from new and experienced educators, um, trying to work in community in, in developing a growing offering of contemplative studies in education classes that I've begun teaching at undergraduate and post-bac and graduate levels in the Faculty of Education at the University of Manitoba. Can you tell me a little bit about those? Like what, what if I was going to take a class with you, which I am, uh, I, every time you, uh, I, I read the title of something you're offering, I'm like, hmm, I wonder if I could just take one more Wayne class. Um, I'd like to take them all. But um, so if I was lucky enough to find extra bubbles of time and to take these courses, what, might, what, might, what, are, what, are, what are they like? What, are, what, what could someone expect from a class like that? 
Well, that's a great question. So, um, and of course, I would have so much to learn from you in any uh, joint participation together. Um, so we would be taking some formal awareness practices and we would be um, practicing those and playing with um, exercises um, in and out of the class. Um, and we'd be really consciously and intentionally, um, you know, training our hearts and our minds to integrate intrapersonal awareness. So, you know, that experience that we opened with today, that going inside, that attention to our inner lives. Um, we'd be working at uh, developing healthy self-relationships and self-compassion and the challenges that that all presents. I just can say, I can imagine that for some, this might be part of some of the practices that are already integrated in their lives. And so we are often attracted to take classes that, that you know, align with things that we do. But I'm guessing there's some people who've never tried some of these practices. Do you find that there's sometimes a little bit of gap in the comfort levels of, of students as they begin these practices? Is, do you notice that it takes a little bit of time to, to, to build these practices in a way where people can feel they can safely uh, participate? Absolutely. Absolutely, because I think, um, I think this education um, looks different. And people are bringing their own um, uh, cultural, um, perhaps um, uh, religious um, experiences uh, to the class. They're, they're bringing their perceptions of what contemplative practices are all about. Um, and so I think uh, we're trying to create a space, uh, certainly a secular space in a, in a public institution like a university or in a public school setting where um, many of the educators are working that is um, inviting uh, exploration, reflection, play, without any sense of having to believe something. It's an invitation to take both an inner journey, but also um, a journey with others and um, to bring a critical awareness to all of that. You know, so often uh, what might come up is, you know, a real uh, critical uh, awareness, um, uh, a sense of, you know, uh, leading to uh, an exploration of unquestioned assumptions of ingrained opini opinions, of um, perhaps unexamined patterns of behavior or under-noticed tendencies. So there may be some initial resistance to that, 
Um, but this, none of the work that we are doing is approached as an ideology to be um, consumed. Uh, there's, a, there's a sense of critical first-person inquiry and discourse. You know, what is this experience like for you? You know, what's coming up for you? How does this relate to your background? How, how, how can you connect uh, what we're exploring in terms of your own lived experience, your own beliefs, your own values? Uh, all of that's at play. So there's, um, there's an opening to kind of a third person study and second person dialogical exploration of a variety of contemplative practices and underlying research and scholarship, um, you know, really designed to cultivate individual and collective well-being and flourishing. Um, but there's also this first-person critical inquiry and discourse uh, playing out at the same time. Um, and a practical sense of what will this mean in terms of an educational setting and, and how do I support that sense of individual and collective well-being and flourishing in, in meaningful and ethically responsible and sustainable ways in my own classroom, rather that's a, a preschool context or whether that's a K-12 setting or whether that's um, a university setting. So there's a whole curricular plan here um, with an intention to serve the context in the best way to meet the needs of, of children or youth or young adults or experienced educators in, in ways that are meaningful for them. So I think uh, people are excited to get into this work uh, after that initial resistance and reassurance that their experience is uh, what matters and that this isn't an imposition of a set of beliefs, um, that this is all a, um, a dialogic context where there is an invitation for critical inquiry. Important it is for them to take that invitation and to experience it, to think about it, to notice moments of resistance if they are going to be, and especially if they are going to be able to invite children and youth and young adults or other colleagues or whoever they are working with with these practices. I think there's one thing to lead a breathing exercise um, and there's another one to experience the breathing exercise. And so the importance of having that lived experience and realizing how we may feel so differently about the same practice at different points and even within the same day. And so how important that is that if we're going to be doing any of that work and thinking curricularly and, and making those ties and connections for, for our students, that we're doing that work ourselves, I think is something that I've learned a lot from you. And and then when you do make those connections to, to how that would work in a classroom, I think it's, uh, it's a different, more authentic way to go about it. Uh, 
um, you know, you've, you've used the word curiosity a couple of times and inquiry, which I think is beautiful. So how do you then invite people to take what they're thinking and learning around some of these practices? How do they make that connection to what's going on with their children and their youth? Where, where do they start and what might that look like? Okay, so thank you again, Jen, for, for the wisdom of sharing from your own experience. Um, because that is where we are starting. We are starting with that intrapersonal awareness and that healthy self-relationship and, and self-compassion. But then we're really paying attention to what's going on um, for others that we're working with. You know, how are we supporting that, that development of interpersonal awareness, that healthy relationship and compassion for others? And so I think that is the draw for many educators is they see the conflict and, and want to support children in working through conflict in, in really healthy uh, ways. And, and they're concerned about uh, systems uh, that disenfranchise, that are uh, not equitable that uh, perpetuate injustice and 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 they are big dreamers and want to think about you know how do we create that same awareness and healthy relationship and compassion at expanding and complex levels of systems and so you know we're really and i want educators to bring that home to bring that into their own context and so you know, with um, Bachelor of Education students, for example, I have just been overjoyed to watch um, music education, music at young, uh, beginning music educators um, take this work into areas of um, songwriting and performance. Um, I had a, a, a young man um, work with a whole, work in the field of, of um, jazz as a genre form and really look at the whole nature of love and compassion and relationship in relation to um, uh, the study of uh, powerful songs and the writing and the composition and performance. Um, I've had a number of human ecology students who've um, taken this work and uh, brought it into their context and looked at uh, the fashion industry that is important to teens um, and looked at that from a critical perspective. I've had uh, uh, a foods uh, teacher in human ecology um, explore how uh, the human ecology program at, uh, in her, a practicum experience could be a program designed to feed hungry students in culturally um, sensitive and informed ways. Uh, I've had experienced teachers take this work and um, draw on their own connections to the medicine wheel and to Anishinaabe teachings. Um, I've had uh, uh, a teacher of grade two and three children um, develop a whole intergenerational friendship program uh, between her class and uh, 
um, a seniors center. Um, I've seen um, learning support teacher develop a whole self-compassion workshop resource for her colleagues who were uh, combating caregiver fatigue. Um, I've seen um, someone in the university uh, context develop a curriculum to support intercultural learning in the university context. Um, and someone else who's taken this work into the practice of developing a curriculum around decolonization and, and settler awareness. And then I've been working directly um, because I've always um, had one foot in schools and one foot in the university context. I've been working directly with preschool and K to 12 teachers um, to really foster compassion-focused principles and practices in the pedagogical work that they're doing, you know, as they are inspired to take compassionate pedagogical action and infuse it throughout the curriculum, you know, every day in all areas of their day. And I've begun to think about this work rather than, you know, compassion in education as um, compassion as education. You yeah. know, what does that look like? You know, pretty lofty sounding, but what does it look like? I was gonna go there, but I heard you, Jen. Yeah, that just, I just wanted you to, you know, as to really take that it's not compassion in education, but compassion as education. And so it's a, you know, it's not something that you, let's do, do compassion for a few minutes today. It's more about a stance and an approach and awareness, a way of being and living with one another in yeah. context. So it's, yeah, it's not a, an add-on or a, another curriculum it's a it's a way of being or a way of living um is what i'm hearing in that compassion as education phrase is that how you're thinking about it a little bit or um am i understanding that yeah absolutely you are yeah it's both you know i think it, it is that philosophy pervading everything we do and that this work, you know, I think you and I would both agree that at the core of all educational work is our ethical relationships with one another. And to come back again to that principle of how do I how do how do we want to treat the person in front of us? So so it's both, it's that, it's that um, positioning, it's that being and the doing. So it's, you know, it's that engaging in embodied practice. It's um, developing emotional awareness um, and self and co-regulation of emotions, you know, uh, emotional intelligence. Um, so often, um, maybe in the past, a creature of the health curriculum or something like that. Whereas we're emotional beings. Um, we primarily act out of our 
feelings and our needs. You know, uh, the work in nonviolent communication is all built around the idea that everything we say and everything we do is an attempt to meet a need. So it's developing this emotional literacy around, you know, our universal, you know, universalizable feelings and needs. It's about um, connecting with the embodied and the experiential with new insight, with new wisdom, and with ever expanding inquiries as, as, as we need to learn more. And it's about setting some conscious and purposeful intentions that develop kindness, uh, that build friendship, and, and really deepen our understanding and practice of compassion. You know, it's recognizing and appreciating our plurality. So if we want compassion for difference, we have to live with difference and seeing the beauty uh, in our differences. And, you know, so maybe that's um, really being exposed to um, diverse experience, language, culture ways of being, um, while at the same time connecting to that common humanity and that appreciation of interdependence. And, and it's about figuring out what do we do with conflict resolution. Um, I'm taking a course right now in conflict resolution uh, in um, nonviolent communication uh, for parents. I'm a, I'm a new grandparent and, and I, I just want to keep learning about, you know, how do we connect with presence and, and what does empathy really mean and, and how do we get to connection with needs and the beauty of what's alive in each of us and, and, and how do we maintain ourselves with practices you know, maintain ourselves with wellness, with practices of gratitude and, and appreciation and so on. When you're working with teachers and, and they're working with students, how are you seeing, like how are students responding when they're part of these experiences? Are they noticing differences? Are you, I guess I'm just wondering what you've observed or noticed or heard from children and youth when they are working with educators who are coming with this philosophical stance, both the, the doing and the being, how are, how are children and youth responding? So I think I would have to just honestly say that we're at the very early places um, in this work. So we're finding our way very much, you know, this is pretty new. Yeah, I don't expect a, you know, a, an overall kind of thing. Just, it was, it, yeah, I just was wondering if you had any initial observation. Well, certainly, absolutely. Um, but what I'm, what I'm, what I've really been working with, um, I've been really working with teachers and, um, you know, in this COVID, I, I'm seconded for part of my position at the university and I've had the incredibly good fortune to be able to work in four schools in Seven Oaks 
And um, so when remote learning came back on, all of that went online, uh, my work with teachers. Um, and so it's really been, um, I've really been working with educators themselves, mostly. And I want to work in a collaborative way with them in figuring out what this is looking like with children and with youth. And so we're really at those very beginning places. So we're really exploring together. Um, and so one of the groups that I work with is on an ed leave. They have a, a, a grant, a, a release time grant uh, from the school division to, uh, to read, to study, to engage in these practices to work with their experiences to figure out what the best fit is for their children. But just simply um, issues around um, having a moment, mm -hmm. having a moment to um, just check in with themselves, with their students, having that moment to honor and recognize <laughs> that, you know, throughout the whole day, we're alive with feelings. And, and where are those feelings pointing us to in terms of our needs and recognizing that it isn't just about my feelings and needs, but we're, we're living in community with one another and developing that awareness of our collective feelings and needs and how are we going to be guided by you know not guided anymore by rules that are set and fixed at the beginning of a school year but are responsive to our ever-changing needs and a renegotiation of what's important and what really matters to us as a community and then expanding that further into an awareness and having the time to pay attention to what's important in the world around us. And so, and what contributions can we make to, to meeting those larger collective community and systemic needs. So, so we're on a journey, but I think already children, I've mainly been working in the K, uh, in the elementary area, and children just being able to name and notice what they're feeling and what one another is feeling and how that is pointing to needs and um, has been an incredible tool for developing understanding and connection and moving um, children to being able to take responsibility for problem solving, uh, conflict resolution. So, so those are the places that I think we're starting to work in. And I, and I just think we're imagining all of that, but we're shifting out and away from, you know, programs that have dominated schools um, like what you earlier said you know we'll do uh, mindfulness moments or 
or we'll do um, an emotional regulation uh, check-in. Um, but where we're really trying to figure out well, what are the core principles and practices here and, and how are they playing out in my particular context that is different from uh, the classroom next door or the school um, that my that the children that I'm teaching are are heading to when they graduate from here. Thank you, and I, I that that helps, and um, it also makes me really thankful to you when you do talk about this being you know the beginning of your work and the beginning of a journey. You really are. A, I've been trying to think of a better word than pioneer, but you've really been someone who has been an innovator and and you're one of only maybe a, a few people in the world. I'm not, I hate to overestimate, but that is really trying to, there, there's lots of people who are doing this work, but really thinking about it within education is fairly new. It is fairly groundbreaking. Um, and so I think you've answered it a million, you know, a lot of really nuanced ways already, but I guess for for what I've heard you name this, this is, you know, contemplative studies and education. And so what does that mean to you? And, and why, why, why is this needed at this time? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think I've, I've, I, I hope that, um, that I have, um, uh, been really trying to point to the urgency for this work in a time where, um, you know, it's always been that time, but maybe our awareness is heightened at that sense of disconnection, um, both at an individual and at a collective level. Yeah, that there's both the, the, the there's an awareness and there seems to be an openness at this time to be. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Yeah. I think, you know, pedagogical work in, uh, you know, uh, work in, in areas like MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, you know, uh, programs that, uh, uh, a program that was developed by John Kabat-Zinn, um, mainly in the medical field for um, being with uh, suffering, uh, mostly in terms of pain and, and chronic illness. You know, the world has, has opened to um, an appreciation and, an, and a valuing of, in, at least in some sectors, of a greater contemplative practice. Um, so I want to come back to the second part of that, though. You know, I do think it's a small band of, of practitioners and, and in a new field. Um, and I see, I see this as, um, you know, a field in education that is informed by interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary studies, um, you know, philosophy and psychology and neuroscience. And, um, and that, but that it's involving us in the phenomenology, you know, where we began with that practice of contemplative practice and experience, where there's a practice commitment and, and a first person, you know, critical inquiry and discourse, where we are bringing attention to embodied experience, where we're, we're starting to pay attention to that we aren't just heads going to meetings, 
you know, we have an embodied experience and, and consciousness that go beyond rationality and intellectualism um, and dip into some of those, you know, unquestioned and, and ingrained um, patterns in our lives. And then it's, it, then it's a real inquiry, a third person inquiry and a second person dialogical exploration of a variety of contemplative practices and, and the, the research and scholarship um, connected to those practices. And I'm working in secular and non-denominational non ways, but it all is aimed you know, at a value of cultivating individual and collective well-being and flourishing, you know, in an ethically responsible way. And then it's coming into education, I think, um, in a way that is really going to connect with um, a more uh, fully integrated way of thinking about curriculum. So yeah, I just, I don't see it as a, as a, as something that we can practice in the margins. I see it as being present in everything that we do. And so Jen, I guess I'm, I'm wondering about time <laughs> and I'm, I'm wondering if you'd like me to maybe bring this to a close. I thought maybe I, if, if you did, but I'm, I'm open to any more questions that you have. I could probably talk to Wayne forever and, um, <laughs> I am very glad to, to hear that um, you've been able to share what you have. And, uh, and I think that one of the things um, I'm hearing from you is that it's not a one-time conversation. It's not a one-time practice. It is about entering into these conversations with questions and thinking and critical dialogue more than one time. Um, so I appreciate this, you know, us dipping our toes into this with you and for you being brave and courageous enough to share your beginnings with us. Uh, I, I think that that's been wonderful, but I do know that you had a quite a special way that we could um, transition from some of the things that you were talking about and into the rest of our days. So I'm going to invite you if you still feel you've got enough time to do that. Um, I think you have one more reading for us. <laughs> well, I have time if you have time. Well, so. I would have time, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well, um, of course, like you, Jen, I am uh, uh, an endless um, lover, <laughs> an insatiable lover of children's and adolescent literature. I use a lot of it in my classes and poetry and drama. Um, in my work at the university, but also in my work with schools. And that's where I often find the children uh, finding connections. Um, and so I thought maybe I would close um, this conversation with um, a reading uh, from a children's book written by Susan Verdi and illustrated by Peter H. Reynolds called um, I Am Love a book of compassion. And so I thought maybe I couldn't do better than, than that book. I agree. That sounds like a beautiful way to do that. <laughs> okay, so thank you. So it begins like this. When I see someone going through a storm, and I wish I could show you the illustrations, a storm of hurt and unfairness, of anger and sadness, 
when the sun disappears and the skies grow dark. And I see there is fear. I ask myself, what can I do to help the light back in? I put my hands on my heart and listen. And that is where I find the answer. I have compassion. I act with tenderness. I am love. I can listen and not say a word. I can be there. Love is being present. I can hug and hold and say, everything will be all right. Love is comfort. I can speak softly and choose my words and actions carefully. Love is gentle. I can give thanks for all I have and am able to share. Love is gratitude. I can keep my mind and body safe and healthy. Love is taking care of me. I can express what's important to me. Love is creative. I can know that no one is perfect. Love is understanding. I can do my best to make things better when something is wrong. Love is effort. I can celebrate those I've loved before. Love is remembering. I can find goodness in a kind word, a helping hand, or a shared smile. Love is tiny gestures. I can breathe in the air that the whole world shares and know all creatures are made from the same stardust. Love is connection. When the clouds roll in for others and for me, I know there's something I can do. I can let my heart lead the way. I am love. You are love. We are love. And with love, we will weather the storm and light up the sky together. So that's Susan Verdi and Peter Reynolds, I'm Love, A Book of Compassion. <laughs> Thank you. And right. I, I, I know you've got some final words that, that will let this uh, beautiful podcast end on, but I, I really do want to thank you over the years. You have truly helped me become my best self, my most compassionate and self-compassionate self. And uh, you said earlier that one of the big things about compassion is being able to make wise, informed actions. And I thank you for, for helping me every time we have a conversation, every time we're, we're w with each other, uh, to be reminded about connecting into wise, informed actions for myself and others. So thank you for being that person for so many of us and for leading this and bringing this such powerful um, 
powerful ways of thinking about education here to Manitoba. I think we are so lucky to have you. And so thank you very, very much for being here. Well, Jen, I can echo those comments because, you know, I really believe that we learn compassion by receiving compassion and by witnessing the compassion of others. And from the very beginning of my meeting you so, so long ago, I have experienced and received and witnessed um, your compassion. And so um, we give out of what um, we receive. And um, I have received um, an incredible sense of uh, an excitement for inquiry from just hanging out with you. So, so thank you for that. And Jen, I thought I would, since I began with a poem, uh, I Can't Breathe, I wanted to end on a, on a hopeful note with a quote uh, about the breath. And this comes from a speech by um, Peace Angel, activist and, and East Indian author, Arundhati Roy. And she writes, Another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. So with that, Jen, I'll, I'll thank you for this opportunity and, uh, and I look forward to us continuing this conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you for ending on such a beautiful, hopeful note. Thanks again. Okay. Bye-bye, Jen. Bye. Schools of Wellbeing is hosted by me, Jen Watt. It is executive produced by Jen Watt and the amazing Rebecca Herringer. It is also edited by the yet more amazing Rebecca Herringer. The beautiful music is composed and performed by a recent Bachelor of Education student from the University of Manitoba, Malcolm Ericastia Summers. This podcast is funded through support from my University of Manitoba Research Startup Funds. It is hosted on the Wellbeing and Wellbecoming in Schools in Canada Research Initiative website, which is available at wellbeinginschools, all one word, dot ca. Please feel free to email me comments or suggestions at jennifer.watt at umanitoba.ca or leave a review wherever you downloaded this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Be well, everyone.